This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. On the show today, we chatted with Ben Eltham about federal politics. Then we spoke with Amber Jamison, breaking news reporter for BuzzFeed US about the latest in American politics. And we also had Alex Helen Nicholas join us in the studio to talk about the history of Australian women's film criticism. And finally, we spoke with Professor David Lindenmeyer, based at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the ANU, about the critically endangered mountain ash forests and ecosystems in the Central Highlands in Victoria, as well as the politics of the forest and the proposed Great Forest National Park. You are listening to 3RRRFM. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And I have with me in the studio right now, Ben Eltham, who is National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. Thanks for joining me, Ben. Good morning, Amy. Morning. How are you? I'm okay. Yeah. 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 You know. I'm liking the check shirt today, Ben. Yeah, well, I wanted to match with my daughter's school uniform. Oh, it is. It's like gingham. We both went in with blue gingham today. That is so sweet. (laughs) I actually want a picture of that. Can you do like a... Yeah, I think one exists. Yeah, Yeah. like a mini me picture. (laughs) (laughs) So cool. (laughs) Um, So federal politics, Ben. Uh, There's been a a few announcements. Uh, People, we love to hear announcements, especially when uh, parliament isn't sitting. We need to fill the space with something, don't we? Well, things do tend to... To happen, I suppose. They do. Well, I mean, oh, also, I, I just remembered, uh, we have this uh, this citizenship debacle, which is still ongoing with uh, Malcolm Roberts under question, the senator, One Nation senator, who may, well, he was a British citizen when he nominated for the Senate. Yes, uh, the rolling spectre of Section 44 of the Constitution continues to cause more trouble. Um, so we've already had two Green senators and Matt Canavan, the LNP senator, um, fall foul of this constitution and have to resign various offices. Malcolm Roberts, the One Nation senator, I think he's now in trouble. Um, There's talk about Julia Banks, the member for Chisholm down here in Melbourne. Mm. She might also potentially be in trouble. We don't really know. She's less likely, apparently. Yeah. Um, But that was an interesting development because they obviously hold a one-seat majority in the lower house and should Chisholm uh, go to a by-election or change hands at all, um, you know. Well, I think we need to, you know, hold our horses on that. Firstly... Um, you know, we've got to firstly have Julia Banks, you know, we have to resolve what the problem is there. She may not have to resign. There may not have to be a by-election. Even if there was a by-election, I expect the coalition would probably win that. Mm. It's a f- Even though it's a marginal seat at the moment, I think it's actually pretty safe coalition territory out well, there. Well, it was an Anna Burke-held seat yeah, for was, quite a while. But the demographics of that seat have been changing for a long time. I vox-popped it in the 2016 election and it's pretty affluent and leafy out there in the eastern <laughs> suburbs. So, you know, I don't necessarily think that it would fall in a by-election. And then, of course, even then, it wouldn't necessarily mean the government would fall. No. Uh, Julia Gillard obviously was the Prime Minister for three years uh, with a minority government. So I think we need to take any of these kind of projections with a grain of salt. Yes, but it does get uh, the media in a flurry. And we also saw that uh, with Matt Canavan, who uh, resigned from his cabinet position, he's still actually in the Senate. It. Uh, mm-hmm. But yes. you know, he was out there suggesting he was unaware that he was um, that 
he had applied for uh, his Italian citizenship and that his mother did it for him and it was uh, not even something he was aware of. Yeah, that story unravelled in about 48 hours as it became clear that you do have to actually sign something and probably even go into the consulate. So seems as though Matt Canavan told a bit of a fib there. I mean, be that as it may, um, I think it is probably time for the High Court to actually make a judgment on one of these Section 44 cases, simply to clear up the vast amount of uncertainty that's now entered into basically any parliamentarian Mm. with any kind of uh, foreign heritage, really. I mean, it's not just dual citizenship. It's now really anyone who might potentially have once have been eligible for mm. citizenship in a foreign country, which, of course... You may uh, need to have renounced that opportunity. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. to take it up. So, um, you know, some, some tricky constitutional waters to navigate there and probably time for the High Court to step in, I think. Yeah. Which, of course, they can't do till someone takes it to the High Court. So exactly. Canavan said he's doing that, so perhaps we'll wait and see that. Yes, and perhaps the Malcolm Roberts example too. He doesn't look like he'll be budging. I can't see Malcolm Roberts resigning. No. (laughs) This may well be the best job he's ever had. (laughs) Well, you know, it wouldn't be bad being a senator, I've got to say. Look, the uh, the pay is pretty decent, I think, as we've canvassed here before, Amy. Yeah, it is, it is. And, I mean, maybe it's just the inner nerd in me, but Senate estimates is also pretty fun. I think it is the internet in you, Amy. Could be, yes. yeah. yeah. Potentially so. Might be a rare thing that most people <laughs> wouldn't find that fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so moving right along from that, um, let's talk about something else very nerdy and exciting, tax reform. Oh, yeah. The sexy topic of tax reform. Look, I live for tax reform. Totally. Um, yeah. yeah, and it comes up a lot. Uh, we have various proposals floated every now and then, and Bill Shorten and his Labor colleagues, Chris Bowen, the Shadow Treasurer, have been out spruiking their latest uh, tax reform idea, which is about clamping down on trusts and actually um, changing the uh, the tax, the minimum tax on trusts or um, transfers on trusts, which is at would be at thirty percent under them. What were where were we at with trusts in the first place that we actually needed to consider? tax reform of trusts? Well, trusts are a very old financial instrument. They go back hundreds of years and they've long been a way for rich people and rich families to squirrel money away and to pay less tax. So so so-called discretionary trusts allow the trust holders, uh, the people in charge of those trusts, the trustees, uh, to basically um, give their money to members of the trust, which are typically family members, and those those members of the family can then obviously have little tax advantages. So the way it works is say that you're a really, really rich person and you've got a lot of income and you put all that income into your family trust, Um, you can then decide where to send that income for tax purposes. So you, the rich individual, can reduce your tax bill while giving little bits of money to your grandkids, your uncles and your aunties, some of whom might not be earning very much money at all, those people are then not paying as much tax as you would, the high net wealth individual. Mm. Um, and, and family trusts and discretionary trusts are very common. Um, they're a very common way for rich people to hide money from the tax office. It's completely legal and legitimate at the moment. And so Labor has announced that they're going to introduce a new measure that basically puts a 30% rate on it. So mm. it's still, by the way, a tax break. I mean, if you're on the top tax bracket, you're paying 47%. So 
you're still getting a 17% tax break by sending your money away to, you know, someone below the tax three threshold or whatever, um, you know, and, and they're not actually outlawing trusts because trusts also have all sorts of uses for people who want to tie up property and to protect assets from, for example, um, businesses going broke or indeed um, they often used in family law disputes to prevent um, assets being liquidated in um, when marriages break up. So there's all sorts of interesting ways in which trusts are used mm. to make assets opaque or to tie them up. Um, and keep them away from people who might want to get access to them. And they're not changing that. They're just increasing the tax rate on it. And they think that it will raise about a billion dollars a year. So really a fairly modest kind of tweak. Yeah, it is. And as Chris Bowen has said, uh, 98% of taxpayers will be unaffected by this if the reform got through. Um, But but 315,000 trusts would pay more tax. So... I mean, the the argument that we're seeing from the coalition, particularly Matthias Corman coming out and saying, uh, you know, this is going to significantly impact upon small businesses, um, you know, farmers apparently will be worse off. Is this really a legitimate criticism? No, farmers are exempt. Labor's actually said that they will um, exempt farms from this issue. So um, we can rule that one out straight away. Small businesses do structure their affairs in trusts, but I think... You know, the question's got to be asked, um, why are they structuring their affairs in trusts? You know, what's wrong with a good old-fashioned company uh, limited by guarantee or whatever? Um, Or even just an ABN sole trader. You know, most small businesses actually aren't trusts. It's only, I think, the more profitable and the well better advised ones, the ones that can afford complicated legal advice and accountants that you need to set up these kind of structures. Yes, and you can also claim that tax advice... um can't you? You can. Labor's looking at cracking down on that too, actually. Right. Um, because it looks as though, you know, I mean, the average person obviously goes to the accountant and spends, what, you know, five or six hundred bucks to get their tax done or whatever. But some people are spending millions mm. with their accounting. Um, and of course, you're able to claim every dollar of, of what you spend on your, your tax accounting <laughs> back on your tax. So there's an incentive there for people to get incredibly complex tax structures set up to really avoid tax you know now um, is that really the best outcome for Australia I'd argue no yeah and one of the other um, I guess examples here of how minimal things are in terms of Labor's approach is that they've ruled out an inheritance um, tax change so at the moment (coughs) uh, people can pass on their wealth without um, you know having a significant tax burden um, to, to create or enable that transfer. Um, that's something that people have been advocating for for a long time. Do you think we'll ever get there? Probably not. Not in my lifetime, it seems like, which is a shame because mm. we desperately need an inheritance tax in this country. There's a fine article by John Quiggan, the economist in Inside Story at the moment about exactly this issue. Um, and it, it ties into inequality, which, of course, Bill Shorten's been talking about so much. Um, if you want to talk about inequality, well, one of the most obvious forms of inequality is generational inequality. And so the ability for very rich people to pass their wealth on to their family members and for those family members to inherit, well, in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars and pay no tax on that inheritance, I, mm. I think that's wrong. You know, mm. I think that's unearned income. That's that's income that you've received simply because you've won the genetic lottery. 
you know, and I, and I don't see why that should receive no tax when there are cleaners and truck drivers and ordinary working class people out there paying money that on the money that they earn. You know, they go out and work long hours um, and pay tax on those earnings and yet someone lucky enough to have a rich parent pays no tax. Mm, exactly, yeah. And uh, and Ben, let's move away from uh, tax reform to something also very sexy, which is water uh, and, uh, and agriculture. How exciting. It actually uh, can be quite fascinating. We'll be talking a little bit about um, kind of that nature Well, you know, area. we live in the city, so perhaps we have a little bit of distance from the issues of water and, and water security but if you go out to the country and talk to not just to farmers but to anyone out in the regions you know they'll tell you that water is a very important issue indeed well, we'll be covering that in our last interview with professor david lindenmeyer so our Great. us city people can get au fait with the importance of water so let's uh, do a little bit of a segue into that beforehand and talk about the latest development on four corners um you know four corners again highlight Highlighting seriously uh, dire areas of um, <laughs> what? How do you say it? Uh, questionable conduct, I well, guess. Well, I mean, I think this is this to me shows just how bad things have got in the Australian media, where it's just it's really only four corners now that can break these big stories um, and get them to national attention. You know, in the old days, there were a lot of media outlets that could break stories and do investigations like this, but they're really not doing them anymore. So. Lucky that we have the ABC in Four Corners and you've got to ask yourself what other stuff are we missing out on mm. that, that isn't ever coming to our attention. So what's happened here is uh, Four Corners has uncovered what appears to be out-and-out corruption in the New South Wales water regulation regime whereby uh, wealthy farmers, particularly cotton farmers in the Darling, Darling Basin, obviously part of the Murray-Darling Basin, Australia's major waterway, um, are simply stealing water. They're, they're taking water out of the river with big pumps and pumping it into big dams um, and no one's really checking on that. Um, and it seems as though they're disabling the meters on their water pumps. Um, it and it also seems as though the New South Wales water regulator, the chief bureaucrat of water in New South Wales, is in on it. Um, and there seems to be some very serious questions raised there about whether that individual is corrupt, perhaps. And so we've seen uh, just recently many uh, politicians across parties joined together to call for a water theft inquiry. Um, in particular, a lot of the South Australian um, politicians, and I'm looking at a photo of uh, Corey Bernardi, Sarah Hanson-Young, Penny Wong, uh, Nick Xenophon. I mean, it's a pretty decent mix of, of party there all united around this issue and the need to uncover what's really been happening. Do you think we actually will uncover it from a government perspective? Malcolm Turnbull's announced some kind of an inquiry, but it's not a, a royal commission. It's certainly a long way short of a full judicial inquiry, which I argue is what we need in this case. You know, we need a proper corruption investigation here. But I think stepping back from, you know, whether this is corruption, whether this is a perversion of the national water market, which I think it is, you've got to step back and look at what's going on with the Murray-Darling Basin and the Murray-Darling Basin plan. Now, this was a plan put in place by Labor some years ago. Originally, actually, the original architecture was put together by Turnbull when he was 
John Howard's Environment Minister back in 2006 and seven. So it goes back a decade. Um, and the idea was to buy water on the market and return it to the environment. And the scientists said that they needed to return something like 7,000 gigalitres. So lots and lots of water needed to be returned to the environment um, in order to keep the river healthy. Now, that was too much water for the Labor government and they settled on a figure of about 4,000. And, of course, that was too much water for the irrigators because they wanted more water for their farms. And so that was then whittled down to 3,200 and then down eventually to less than 3,000 gigalitres of water returning to the environment. And now, of course, we're finding out that the water is being stolen anyway. So I think it's a metaphor really for the way that we treat the river and the environment more broadly in this country, which is that when it comes to the crunch, we still don't listen to the scientists. We still put the interests of special interests of big business, of agriculture, of irrigators, before that of the health of the river. Mm. And it is a a small proportion of people that are getting this benefit versus the public good of the the need for good water. Well, absolutely. I mean, by definition, I mean, the the people who are benefiting here are the people at the top of the river (laughs) because (laughs) they can take the water out first and the people who are suffering are the people at the bottom of the river and, of course, then there's also the river itself, the animals and wildlife and agriculture that it supports, but not just the agriculture, you know, the environmental yes. values, the biodiversity. Um, you know, I could go on and on. I mean, it's the major water system of this continent. Mm. Of course, we know that the continent is drying with climate change. We know that water is going to be more scarce in future decades. There's going to be less rain and less runoff in the system. So we don't really have a moment to spare, but I'm very pessimistic that we really will address this, looking at water policy as looking at energy policy. You mm-hmm. know, there's a, there's a very it's very difficult for governments to fight the special interests. Mm. And Ben, I mentioned at the top of the show same-sex marriage, which uh, we obviously are keeping an eye on. And there was a little bit of a hint this week uh, when Turnbull was asked about this that uh, he said, well, of course, if it went to a vote, then uh, any Liberal backbencher is able to cross the floor because that's in our party rules and culture. Um, And that then led to a great amount of media speculation that perhaps Turnbull was opening the door to a vote on a private member's bill put forward by uh, Liberal Senator Dean Smith. Is this just ridiculously wild speculation that has been blown out of proportion or is there something to it? Oh, who knows, Amy? I mean, you know, you'd have to say at this stage of the marriage equality debate, it's just more speculation. You know, until we see a bill on the floor of Parliament, then, you know, we we can't take it too seriously. I'd just point out that Liberals have always been able to cross the floor. <laughs> you know, there's there's no law or constitutional rule that says they must vote with their party. Every parliamentarian can vote however they like on every bill. Mm. Um, and that includes uh, whether we who we let to get married in this country. So, you know, I just think that that's another example of the internal disunity within the coalition. But it's a very live disunity. It's very serious stuff. I mean, yes. there are internal ructions. You know, there's people now talking about another coup against Turnbull. You know, would they potentially try and remove Turnbull mm. and put in Peter Dutton? And Greg Hunter's his Greg deputy. Greg Hunter's his deputy. I don't take that too seriously. No. But the very fact that, you know, reports like that are emerging into the media being leaked or whatever suggests that, 
um, it's not a happy camp in the Liberal Party at the moment. And they are struggling. They're struggling with the political agenda. Uh, Labor has seized the opportunity afforded by Liberal disunity to then get on the front foot and announce things like tax reform measures for family trusts. And Bill Shorten's been talking a lot about inequality lately. So, you know, um, the Liberals seem to have no answer to this sort of policy focus on inequality, particularly wealth inequality. Um, they just keep trotting out the same old lines about, oh, you know, inequality is not that bad. Oh, you know, the trickle down will work. You know, and that there's there's no real philosophical engagement with Labor's agenda here, apart from sort of attacking them, to claiming them that that, you know, that it won't work. Mm. So you know, they're all at sea on a number of issues, and even when the government has a win, like it did have with the the Gonski schools reform package, it's kind of sank without trace, hasn't it? You know, no one really has mentioned it now, so <laughs> it's moved on. We've yeah, all moved on, and, and Turnbull's got very little credit for it. Yes, that is so true. Well, uh, we'll keep an eye on the ructions because, uh, yes, it's always fascinating and quite depressing, but um, but not as important as these bigger policy issues, which we should be constantly considering in more detail. Well, so. I agree. You know, the policy is important. I mean, let's look at the things we've talked about today, you know, uh, the future of the Murray-Darling Basin, you know, that's that's pretty important stuff. So, you know, I think sometimes it's important for people to take a step back from what's in the media and what's mm. being reported about this stuff and to think about the bigger picture issues, what sort of country, what sort of society would we like to live in in the future? What would we like our children to inherit? Couldn't agree more, Ben, and what a great note to finish it on. Thank you for coming in today, as always, to talk federal politics. Thanks, Amy. That was Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, who joins us regularly to discuss federal politics. And you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM. As promised, we have... On the phone from New York, Amber Jamison, who is uh, now uh, in her new role. She was with The Guardian, you may remember. Um, She's now a breaking news reporter at BuzzFeed US, which I'm sure is a very hectic role in this Trump presidency. So really looking forward to chatting all things US politics with you, Amber. Hi. Hi, Amy. How are you going? I was going to say, we call it breaking news because we're all a bit broken. (laughs) It's a really good point. Um, I'm feeling the brokenness from across the ocean. Uh, There's just been so much upheaval, uh, even in the last week, in the Trump um, staff, uh, in, in his, I guess, key priorities. So let's start with his team uh, because we've seen some major shuffles and movements and, you know, resignations. First up, um, one of them that's uh, particularly saddening, I think, is Sean Spicer, um, who we now will not get to see give uh, any more of those wonderful press conferences and nor will we see Melissa McCarthy reprise her role on Saturday Night Live as Sean Spicer. I mean, isn't this sad? I was personally sad to hear that Spicy was out. Um, although technically Sean Spicer resigned, it was a bit yes. of a power battle. Um, there'd been a new, he had only sort of been acting as the communications director. He'd also been the, the press secretary. Uh, and so when Trump announced it, Anthony Scaramucci, who was fired today, but when he was hired 10 days ago, um, that was enough of a power battle that Sean Spicer basically knew that he was being demoted and yeah. and 
therefore left. But yes, and it's sort of, it is fascinating because, you know, Sean Spicer did have these um, very iconic press conferences where you would see him defend the undefendable and you'd watch him, you know, particularly the very first one when he came out talking about the inauguration crowd sizes. And it's something he's, you know, you, we've watched it again and again, kind of have these conversations with journalists saying the tweet speaks for itself and trying to argue <laughs> points that are totally wrong. Um, but then so quickly we had quite a sort of flip um, with Anthony Scaramucci, known as the Mooch, um, who kind of came in and was much more of a... He's, the Mooch is much more of a sort of slick, uh, kind of 80s, 90s, rich New York businessman in the style of Trump. And yeah. Sean Spicer was never quite as slick in the same way. Um, and, you know, the Mooch had very similar hand movements and characteristics <laughs> to to Trump himself. Um, and so it was sort of, I, I would already kind of been like, oh, who, you know, there'd been a lot of chat of who was going to be the sort of SNL comedian, um, you know, mocking mocking the Mooch. But mm. he's gone. Ben Stiller was a front runner, days. wasn't he? Yes, I mean, that was a great kind of list of people. I mean, he himself was sort of um, suggesting Meryl Streep. Because, you know, <laughs> one of the things with Scaramucci is that he loves the press, loves, loves attention. And in fact, there's, there is people pointing out that maybe that has been what got him kicked out so quickly because mm. in just a week, he sort of became the story of the presidency. Um, there was this just insane interview that was published in, in the New Yorker last week, none of which I could say on radio because it's all incredibly offensive what he was saying about his own colleagues. Yes. Um, but basically threatening other advisors, saying they would be fired, um, you know, accusing them of leaking and of to the media. And, and, you know, he was saying stuff that was incredibly shocking stuff. And I think a lot of people sort of assume that, oh, he mustn't have known the interview was on the record or he didn't realise. Absolutely not. I mean, this is a person who has been well involved in giving press interviews for a long time. As You know, it, from all accounts, he was very well aware of what was being said and that it was on the record. I don't think he necessarily thought it would be an an article published but you know he he sort of knew what was happening and was stirring the pot and then there was other uh stories out over the weekend by the new york post i don't know if you guys saw these but about that his wife had asked for him for a divorce and yes. when she was nine months pregnant and that he'd had a child last week so i you know there'd been a lot sort of um you know, the mood had kind of been the main story of the week. Um, and so when the new chief of staff, uh, John Kelly, came in, because, as you know, the mood had been saying that the, the former chief of staff, Rince Priebus, mm. um, who'd kind of been, he's much more of an old Republican figure, but his days were numbered. Well, he was fired on Friday, and then on Monday, uh, the new chief of staff just asked the president to fire um, the mooch. So it's sort of been this completely, I would say, chaotic time of movements. Um, however, Donald Trump very much tweeted this morning to say no White House chaos. So, <laughs> and that it was a great day at the White House. So yes. I guess that's shaping really the, the narrative. Eye of the <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, in terms of Rance Priebus, uh, who was the chief of staff to Trump and uh, was very closely mm-hmm. involved in Trump's campaign, uh, I read, mm. I think it was in The Guardian, that. Uh, that apparently, and this is perhaps speculation, you will know better than I, uh, that Priebus had already been marked as potentially not part of the inner circle because when we saw that uh, famous 
uh, tape which was called Gropegate um, when uh, Donald Trump was talking about women in very unsavoury terms. Mm-hmm. He had actually uh, suggested to Trump that he should pull out of the race at that uh, point and so apparently he was never considered a member of the October 8th coalition. Uh, the people who really backed Trump despite uh, it, all of his uh, failings, as one might say. I mean, do you think that well, it is and, quite and shocking th- that such someone so close to Trump has been, you know, removed or re- had to resign? Well, it, there, bringing up that point, one of the things that Trump always prides himself on is loyalty, and many people will point out that if they have ever questioned Trump, I mean, one of the things, you know, Scaramucci had not backed Trump um, the whole way through the campaign, and he had to do a lot of backtracking when he first was appointed last week. Um, and, you know, and he said, Trump always mentions this to me. You know, Trump is known as bringing things up if people ever questioned or backed or, or didn't um, be loyal to him. So, yes, is that, you know, one of the reasons I'm sure, you know, Rince Priebus, I can never pronounce his right name probably, Rince Pre- I have to put an American accent every time. But <laughs> Priebus, you know, was very much a, much more of a member of the Republican Party. He wasn't so much a, you know, the sort of Trump, you know, Scaramucci was much more of a, you know, new businessman guy. John Kelly's more of a Marine, former, you know, military general. Yeah. Um, Priebus was much more of the Republican Party classic, and, and Trump has tried to pull away from that uh, and, you know, really struggled with the party during the the actual campaign and you know the chief of staff role has a lot of power it's the one that makes the calendar it sort of decides who um the president meets with usually the advisors all report um to the chief of staff and that's something that Priebus didn't seem to have that power partly because in the trump administration there are advisors who are related to the president mm. you know with ivanka trump and um jared kushner her husband so you there is much more less of the sort of classic ways of running a white um, because a lot of these people who are in there are family or like someone like Hope Hicks, who's um, strategic communications, has worked with Trump for years and years and years and years. So it, it is. A, I think it was a sort of difficult role for Priebus to have uh, and it seems like no one else wanted it for a while. Uh, and then, you know, like they've been talking for a long time that his days were numbered and that he was going to be gone soon. So... What was the final thing that pushed you? You sort of never know in this administration, yeah. but you know he he'd been on. Um, he attended. You know, on the day that he was fired, he was at a, you know the claims that he resigned the night before, and then he was attending a um, speech with Trump in Long Island the next day. So I think there's a bit more of a sort of shocking news than um, than necessarily that it had all been a sort of planned out way in advance. Yeah. That seems to be a bit of a trend, and especially given the tweets that we get regularly when when one checks Twitter. You know, six minutes ago, Trump tweeted this. One in particular. That's it, and that's how we found out. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah. One one other area where loyalty is, uh, has been questioned uh, is that Trump has been tweeting uh, a few days ago about Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, and has been very disappointed mm-hmm. uh, in Jeff Sessions. This is quite surprising because Jeff seems to be a, a, a Trumpite. Um, you know, he's pretty conservative and has been, um, you know, he look, he appears to have been quite loyal. But uh, because uh, Sessions recused himself from the investigation into um, attempts that are alleged that uh, Russian 
hackers may have interfered with the 2016 mm-hmm. election, which then obviously meant that uh, Robert Mueller was appointed special counsel. It may in future develop into something which is a real problem for the Trump presidency. I mean, is this kind of criticism of Sessions justified? Because it, it appears that uh, this is more a, a personal thing. It definitely seems much more of a personal thing because in many ways Jeff Sessions, as you mentioned, is a real loyalist and also is like a pretty hardcore conservative, has very tough views on things to do with immigration and race. And so in many ways you would think, uh, you know, has a strong pushing of how um, the kind of agenda that Trump wants to have in his presidency Again, this, I think, goes back to a little of that loyalty thing we were just talking about, which is that Trump says if he had known Sessions was going to recuse himself, then he, he wouldn't have given him the job. Um, you know, that's tough because Rudy Giuliani, the former New York mayor, was kind of the other name that's often mentioned as possibly being the Attorney General, particularly if um, Sessions does get the boot. Mm. Um, and Giuliani also said that he would recuse himself um, from that investigation, would have recused himself. So, you know, I think a lot of these times uh, Trump doesn't necessarily like um, that people are perhaps, uh, I guess maybe being a little careful of themselves as well as him. You know, Sessions was aware that it would be incredibly bad for him if he was in any way involved in that investigation. So was a wise move for him personally to step aside from it, obviously. I think today they had, you know, and but like the fact that, that, Trump is insulting his attorney general on Twitter is sort of, I mean, completely wild, particularly someone who has been such an ally to him. Yeah. Um, but one, I think it just says a lot about what this presidency and administration is like. It's, you know, there's a real sort of, comp- I mean, you know, it's like a reality television show. You know, there's tension and there's new characters and there's sort of pushing of, of where loyalties lie. And that's kind of how Trump seems to... Um, to run the government and you know they met I think there was a sort of meeting with them all this morning and they had a chat and it was the first time that they'd both been together um since these sort of twitter attacks have happened but whether you know the mooch had sort of been the spotlight for the, the last <laughs> few days whether now uh with Kelly as chief of staff and, and the mooch out whether Sessions possibly uh, you know losing his job is he's probably the most likely of all the people in the administration right now who would next be uh losing their role. Mm. And, and it's crazy that that's what we're saying. But. Y- yes, it's shocking, actually. Yeah. Who would have thought? And hence the surprises continue. Um, you never know what you're going to wake up to, do you? <laughs> <laughs> just always a fascinating just mystery. I mean, the days feel long, but, you know, the weeks feel short. Yes, yes. And now let's talk about uh, one of the key policy platforms that Trump took to the election, which was uh, it was about um, health, the health care uh, reform, mm-hmm. and that obviously Obamacare has been hugely controversial even prior to Trump and, and the election run. But uh, these he had promised to uh, repeal and replace it with um, something else. And mm-hmm. we've seen various attempts to do this. Uh, what is the latest development? Because I know this was just voted upon and there was a bit of... Um, a surprise, I guess. It was. It was a pretty sort of um, crazy evening. Basically, it was last Thursday. Um, and there, you know, as, as you mentioned, there have been all these attempts to kind of repeal and replace it, and none of them had gone through. And the only bill that they thought there would be enough support for um, would be literally a bill to say that they would discuss health care and that that would be... Um, 
bills would be able to be put forward. And so Senator John McCain, who we'll all remember from the 2008 campaign, who you know currently has been diagnosed with brain cancer and was recovering from surgery, literally came back just days after his surgery to Washington in order to vote and support that debate would happen uh, about health care. Uh, then on Thursday evening, um, and a bill was put up with a very short notice. I mean, it was literally 90 minutes. Um, and then they were voting on it, it was called... It was known as the skinny repeal, as in it was sort of a slimmed-down version. Um, but it did mean some pretty big changes. It meant things like it did away with what they call the individual mandate, where if you don't have health insurance, you have to pay uh, a tax. Um, it also meant things like there was cuts to Planned Parenthood, um, large employers did not have to offer um, health insurance. Like There were some, some major changes, but there weren't changes to Medicaid, which is a sort of... Um, public health care available to um, very poor people. Uh, but what happened in this, I mean, it was literally the vote was held at 1.30. It was supposed to be at midnight. It got pushed back because there wasn't enough support. You were seeing senators on the floor of the, of the Senate trying to convince um, senators that they should support it. But it failed. And it failed because, one, yes, the, the Democrats didn't support it, but also three Republicans didn't. Um, and there were two women, Susan Collins from Maine and Lisa Mikowski from Alaska, who had been very anti um, many of the new health care bills. They didn't want cuts to Planned Parenthood. They, um, you know, it was very unpopular in their own districts and so they did not support it. But the one that was a surprise was John McCain, um, who literally sort of just came out and stuck his thumb down and said no, and you could just take gasps. Um, because it was this big surprise um, and, you know, McCain has always said he was the maverick and that he was that you needed to come together and on these sort of issues. He actually, you know, did a speech sort of saying that they all needed to work out a proper healthcare bill and that, you know, it, it hadn't sort of... Essentially, he was just anti this sort of slapdash um, bill. But really, that was the last option that healthcare reform had. Um, Mitch McConnell, who's the Senate Majority Leader, who's the one who really puts up these bills and kind of is in charge of the, you know, getting the Republican votes and, and, and running those um, bills. I mean, he said afterwards, like, OK, well, we're, we're moving on. He's very much this. It's very much accepted now that healthcare will not be up for debate because there's just not... Uh, the votes for it, although they are saying that, you know, we just, if, if both sides work together to try and improve, um, you know, a healthcare bill, but it, it basically does, it doesn't have enough votes on it, but Trump won't let this go, and so Trump is now continuing to, uh, you know, really insult Republicans on on Twitter and saying in saying they should lose their health care, like the senators, and and he's sort of threatening they should change Senate rules so it can be easier to vote through. And so, I mean, he's obviously incredibly frustrated uh, that they cannot get this passed because it has been something that, one, he campaigned hard against, but also Republicans have been campaigning against this from for years, mm. years and years. Like, this has been, this is not new. They, they, they've won elections campaigning against Obamacare, uh, and yet they have not developed uh, a bill that has wide enough support to actually pass. It's quite surprising that they would have so many failed attempts. Um, obviously, it's, it's difficult to know exactly if you've got the numbers, but, um, I mean, it, it, is a, it was pretty clear that they, they ended up not having the numbers. Well, and that's it, and that's why you're sort of seeing literally on... I mean, I think it is usually assumed that John McCain, even though he often 
you know, paints himself as the maverick and, mm. you know, the sort of often voice of reason at the Republican Party, and he might speak out against his party, but then he always votes for the bill. Like, that has been, I mean, it's often a bit of a joke, um, particularly in these sort of younger media circles, that, you know, McCain says one thing, but then always votes in line with the party. And so I think there was an assumption that McCain would fall in line um, and vote. And so I, that seems to... It was McCain who sort of through them. They knew they wouldn't have the other two senators. Yeah. Um, they did think they would have McCain, which would have given them a tie, and then um, Vice President Mike Pence would have come and um, done the final uh, tie-breaking vote and, and passed the bill. So, I mean, you know, Mike Pence was ready and waiting. He was on the floor, ready to, to vote on it. He, they assumed it would be 50-50 and that it would pass. Mm. And so, um, you know, these... And, you know, the, McCain's biggest argument against it was that you know, this, it shouldn't be healthcare, which is this huge thing. While he very much is anti Obamacare and some of the regulations, that if there isn't a proper replacement, that you can't just leave people with sort of uncertainty surrounding their healthcare. It's such a big, serious issue that it really needs to be um, a bill that's created properly and not done in this sort of slapdash, literally middle of the night with just, you know, an hour. Uh, warning uh, to pass when, it, when it's so important. Exactly. And it seems like these kind of actions from Senator John McCain are really building his political capital in a, in a Trump era. Um, it's almost <laughs> surprising now that you think he did run for president. Uh, perhaps he'd have a better shot now. <laughs> well, probably, yes. And I think the thing is, like, you know, Republic, uh, sorry, John McCain is much more of that sort of old-school Republican who's really a conservative and not necessarily, like, you know, quite different from Trump in, in many ways. So I think that really shows that Trump isn't necessarily in line with his party. While he's a Republican and while he, you know, has many of these beliefs, he, he is sort of very different. You see this in lots of different bills, whether that be things to do with Russian sanctions, whether that be health care, you know, that Trump has a very different um, take than the party line. Mm. And let's talk about Russian sanctions because this does highlight uh, obviously one of the ongoing speculations around um, just how friendly are um, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, the Russian president. And we have seen that uh, in in the American, um, you know, is it Congress or Senate voted on, on Russian sanctions? Both. Both. Both actually. So um, Congress voted on it first yep. and it passed and then Senate voted on it and it passed 98 to 2 votes. Amazing. Um, and one of those two were... were but what is important to note is that it's also Russia, Iran and North Korea. It's sanctions against all three mm. of them, um, which is basically how it also got the support because, you know... The Republicans wanted to have, you know, to change the sort of Iran nuclear deal. The Democrats wanted for Russia and North Korea. So, so Bernie Sanders didn't support it, and he didn't support it because of um, how it would affect the relationship with Iran. But apart from that, it has been this very well-supported bill that basically slaps new financial restrictions on um, Moscow doing business um, with American companies, and it also restricts. Trump's ability to um, waive the penalties and, and adjust it. Usually sort of um, presidents often have a bit of a like ability to, to you know, I guess a free hand in dealing with foreign governments, but this very much takes away Trump's own discretion um, 
And in fact, if he wanted to waive sanctions on Russia, Trump would have to send Congress a report explaining why, and then they would have 30 days to vote on that. Um, and so apparently, you know, Trump read early drafts of this and negotiated it and, and approved it, says the White House, and he plans to sign it. Mm. Um, but, you know, as you mentioned, he has, Trump has also wanted a much more positive positive relationship with Russia. He still, according to what um, Scaramucci said last week as his um, spokesperson, he said that Trump still isn't sure that Russia really did have interference in the 2016 election, something that is being very widely accepted by politicians on both sides and also, you know, just by the, um, like, intelligence agencies have very largely, like, that very well accepted, but apparently the president doesn't necessarily believe that still. Um, so one of the conce- well, one of the questions now is, while it seems that Trump will likely sign this, what effect that will have, and two, whether he usually holds, they usually hold public signings for bills. You know, a president signs something into law, it's a whole, there's a big, you know, press conference and all that sort of thing. Whether or not Trump will do that for this Russia sanctions bill or whether he will be trying to do it uh, a little more mm. quietly because he doesn't necessarily want to draw attention to it um, in because of his, you know, known comments about Russia. No, and we should note that uh, Vladimir Putin has responded uh, in, in a, with a kind of retaliatory uh, action and he's ordered the US to cut staff at its diploma- diplomatic mission by 755 in, and that's one of yeah. um, the biggest, I guess, developments, diplomatic developments between the US and Russia since the Cold War. And he's also seized property from... Mm. Um, from that, so I mean, yes, it's a it's a major sort of um, international political issue that's happening, and because we have this whole questions of whether um, questions of whether Russia had interference in the election, but also whether how much the Trump, Trump campaign did or did not have any, um, you know, collusion with Russia, that is remains unknown. Um, apart from, I guess you can argue the obviously the meeting that um, Donald Trump Jr. had. Um, with various uh, Kremlin associates um, or related associates. But, you know, that is, you know, it's one of these things now where it's it's a real difficult issue uh, for Trump and how he handles it going forward. Exactly, exactly. Uh, we will keep watching that Russia development and I know we've, we've chatted about it pretty much every time um, we, we talk, Amber, so <laughs> it'll be interesting to watch over the years ahead um, to see if anything actually eventuates from that investigation as well. But I'd really like to thank you so much because uh, your insights are absolutely so valuable. Oh, always an absolute pleasure to talk. Thank you so much, Amy. My pleasure. And uh, that was Amber Jamison, who's breaking news reporter at BuzzFeed US. And uh, she often talks to us about US politics and the Trump presidency. And I'm sure you will agree, it's extremely useful to have someone there on the ground who's really in the thick of it. And obviously now with the breaking news gig, it's going to be pretty intense. So uh, thank you again to Amber for that. 
And you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. And as we promised, or as I promised, and I I make promises I can keep, that's the beauty of me, is that uh, we have with us Alex, Helen Nicholas, who you may be familiar with because she often um, features on Triple R's very own Plato's Cave program, and she was um, there last night. And she's also a film critic herself and co-editor of Senses of Cinema, which is a phenomenal online um I guess it's a journal uh, and it's so yeah it's that's my go-to so I was very excited to hear that Alex is uh, one of the many wonderful people behind that great publication and she's also written four books on cult horror and exploitation cinema all with a gender focus and she joins me now to discuss an essay that she's written uh, for Overland Journal which you can access online and it's called Projecting Prejudice Why It's Time to Remember Women's Film Criticism. Thank you Alex for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Hello. Hi. It's really great to have you. Um, And this area seems like a very, um, oh, just something that hasn't really had attention paid to it. It's interesting. I think the broader field of women in the women in screen industries, whether it's gaming, um, television, certainly film from my perspective is something that in recent years has really been opening up for discussion. Yeah. In the, um, in the last couple of years, it's been yeah. really prominent. Yeah. I mean, in, in Australia, I think, um, you know, with the, the international visibility of something like The Babadook, uh, Jennifer Kent's film, The Babadook, um, I think that really rallied the troops in terms of uh, women's filmmaking. Um, and of course, that feeds into into the kind of media discussion about women's filmmaking. And we had things like the Gender Matters um uh, program, I guess the the funding um, from the from Screen Australia, mm. um, where they were looking at addressing this sort of issue of um, yeah the gender inequalities, like why why aren't women making as many films as men in Australia, and what can we do to address that? And I think that there's been um, bleed into other kinds of women's uh, production, and that that does feed into into film criticism, which I think is part of the of the kind of screen culture's ecosystem, but it's often perhaps left out of those more immediate discussions. And internationally, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of discussion about women film critics and, and similar questions that yeah. that we that we do ask about women's filmmaking more generally. Mm. And if we put it into a broader context around criticism and women's writing, mm-hmm. um, and you do mention a couple of these in that essay, there's obviously Australia's uh, Stellar Count, which is conducted by the Stellar Prize, yep. which looks at Australian uh, journals or and magazines that are literary and mm-hmm. um, whether women are writing on other women, how many women are featured, in wh- where are they featured, how prominent. Um, and similarly, there's been uh, studies into those for the London Review of Books, mm-hmm. the New York Review of Books. So that's also um, been quite prominent in uh, the last five years. There's Countess, which is around women artists yep. in yep. Australia and also whether they're featured in exhibitions and catalogues. So um, we've seen a lot of this within the cultural sector, more and more awareness growing around this. Um, and I note that you also, oh, well, you are a researcher and this is part of um, your research, uh, as it says in the piece. Yep. So let's start out with the project and that you've undertaken that you describe in this this essay, because it is a pretty large undertaking, um, but an important one. And what you are focusing on is women 
film critics in Australia historically. So you're looking at a very specific time period um, with a specific set of publications. So first of all, how did you set the parameters and decide what was most important to be focusing on? Look, it's it's there's a lot in there, so I hope I don't <laughs> I hope I don't get too excited and start rambling. <laughs> um, the fellowship that I'm doing is with the AFI Research Collection that's housed at RMIT. It's an extraordinary resource. They have just an incredible wealth of um, of publications and material that are, that are freely accessible. Um, and when I was thinking about, I really wanted to do something about uh, women's film criticism. Last year, I had the privilege of being a mentor on MIF. Uh, they have a critics campus, which again, they're repeating again this year. And I mentored uh, a, an emerging film critic, a fabulous woman called Tanya Farley, who I believe has done some stuff around the traps here with us at Triple R. Um, and just talking to the younger film critics, so much of film criticism now is online. I mean, it's really that the primary ecosystem for nuts and bolts freelancing is really an online pursuit. And it occurred to me that, that this gap that I sort of lived through being a bit older really was over this, you know, I saw the end of print being the dominant form moving into online being the dominant arena for film criticism in Australia and internationally as well. Um, and there was a real gap, I think, both in my own knowledge and also I felt more broadly about this history, you know, that the, 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 the sort of our tribal elders, if you will, um, you know, earned their stripes in print. Mm. So I was really interested in looking back at the 80s and 90s in particular, this pre-internet time, especially because it was such a hugely, hugely potent and productive time for Australian women's filmmaking. Um, I think like a lot of people, not just women, but a lot of people, the the findings of the Stella count is always something that's highly anticipated, always very fascinating. So I was curious, how does film criticism fit into that? Because film criticism in Australia, at least, Cameron Williams wrote a really brilliant piece recently for Real Time where there's a, you know, he, he discusses that there's a real risk that film criticism is almost being dismissed as a kind of hobbyist, dedicated hobbyists, um, that anybody can kind of be a film critic. And we see that with Triple J's, um, hey, you know, you can be the, you can replace Mark Fennell, just send in a tape. And the, the young woman that, um, that got that role has experience in community radio and she's fabulous and mm. she's going to be amazing. But this idea that anybody can do film criticism is something, um, that is, is frankly just really insulting for those of us that mm. actually do it as a, as a job. It's like, no, I work really hard and yeah. I, I have knowledge and professional skills that I brought to this. Um, so all of these things came together, um, for my, research fellowship at the AFI research collection and I just wanted to get a grasp on the history you know is it historically does it mimic the findings of not just the stellar count in terms of literary criticism but these international findings about contemporary women's film criticism Uh, a woman called Dr Martha M Lawson did a report last year um, at the centre of the study of women in television and film from the San Diego uh, State University and she found these basically similar to the Stella Prize about women's film criticism specifically but that doesn't apply to Australia so I really wanted to get a bit of historical grounding on that mm. to kind of get a grip on yeah the foundations of where we're at now. And it's also a little bit easier if you can confine it to print publications because there is you know a set 
hard copy version where you can make comparisons because an editor has selected them and and put them together in one you know issue or edition so you can read into different biases that may be occurring based on human interference whereas if you're looking at online it really is limitless isn't it and it's so democratized in a way that it would be quite difficult nowadays to be able to um, absolutely measure that and i think that uh, the internet in particular you have issues about binaries between informal and formal um you know how do we include blogs mm. uh, do we include podcasts do we include people on youtube um at the same time my wonderful colleague adrian martin um quite a renowned australian film critic um who's been hugely supportive of my project he made a really valuable point that uh, i think is essential to remember is that even back during the period that i was looking at in the 80s and 90s a lot of women weren't necessarily involved in these more uh, kind of formal publications but they were doing things like you know art gallery catalogs and uh, zine zine culture was mm. a really rich space for more informal women's film criticism um, so those those distinctions still exist but I don't think that it's as hazy as it is today particularly in online uh, critical ecosystems yeah and when we talk about the publications you did look at I mean how many of these are still around <laughs> None. Yeah. None. Oh, sorry. I apologise. Metro magazine Metro. Is, is growing great guns. That's um, good. The wonderful Adolfo is the editor there. And I apologise, yeah. Adolfo, for saying that you're not still going. You guys are going fabulously. Um, really, Adolfo's background is in, he's a, a Voice Works alumni. Oh, right. Um, and he's an extraordinary editor, but yeah, also yeah. really champions emerging writers and mm. new voices and diverse voices. So it would be criminal of me to neglect the importance of Metro, not just historically, but also in the contemporary film critical culture in Australia. Well, that's also then very interesting um, to think about the landscape that we are looking at. And I'll just read out some of them. For people who were really highly aware of film criticism in the 80s and 90s, we have here uh, Cinema Papers, which was one of the largest and most important um, publications, Metro Magazine, as you mentioned, Freeze Frame, The Video Age and Encore. Um, and so I'm guessing... That they were the they were those ex- exact publications that you were looking at. They were the ones that I that I focused yeah. on. Absolutely. I mean, that's pretty big in itself because it was uh, a, it was a ride. Yeah, <laughs> and and this is all done manually. Mm, just sitting down in the in the beautiful dusty trenches. I'm I'm a researcher sort of in, by instinct. Yeah. So sitting down in the archives with that smell of dust oh, and it's, it's just beautiful. Yeah, and we don't get it a that. lot with with an online kind of research culture that's becoming more and more prevalent. I really miss mm. the, you know, just sitting there with dusty old things. Yes, I can definitely <laughs> uh, relate to you there. And so now if we're looking at the, the exact dates um, of, of where we are in history and, and what you're looking at, um, I think I'm just trying to look at, was it 1986 to 99? I was looking at 80 to 99. 80 to um, 99. But some of these journals were diff- were actually around at different points they were, within that They were. Period. I mean, Freeze Frame didn't have a very long life. Yep. The video age only went for a couple of years. Mm. Um, cinema Papers is the big one. Mm. Um, I wrote a separate article recently for Senses of Cinema that talks about growing up with Cinema Papers. I think mm. Cinema Papers was the first proper film magazine and the first real film criticism that I was ever exposed to. Up until then, I was buying, you know, like Smash Hits magazine and things like <laughs> oh that. Oh, gosh. That you brings know, Dolly. Yeah. Um, and, and it had Nick Cave. It was the Ghost of the Civil Dead issue edited by Philippa Hawker that I only found out recently, who's, um, 
you know, a, a hero, I think, for, for many Australian women film critics, not just a mm. nice person, but a very supportive and encouraging peer. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I bought that because I was, I loved Nick Cave and I was too young to see the movie. So, and, and it was, it was an extraordinary experience revisiting that magazine and finding yeah. it again. Wow. Yeah, that is a trip down memory lane. So let's talk about some of your findings because they are pretty staggering. Um, And I really want to, I guess, understand what you think it really reveals, what the findings reveal about women's place in society and in Australia as film critics and and voices on film. Yeah, sure. Look, I think my my general overview would be um, that we can't underestimate what a hugely productive, especially the 90s, what a hugely productive and magical period it was for Australian women's filmmaking. Um, in in relation to my research at the AFI, I almost accidentally made a website. It's just a Tumblr called Generation Starstruck because I started off with a spreadsheet um, just thinking, okay, you know, listing the films made by women during this period, but there were so many of them that I just didn't expect. Yeah, but it wow. was sort of it became its own project, and mm. that in turn has led to me co-curating the Pioneering Women program at the Melbourne International Film Festival. Yes, where I've been granted the privilege of, of joining them to show some of these films that are many of which have been forgotten. Um, and what I think is really fascinating is the the assumption that we're always progressing. I think that we have this idea that we're always becoming more open minded and we're always becoming more progressive. I have not found that in this case. I think there's some, been some really concrete steps back. Um, I, I have stats in the article uh, related to cinema papers in particular, just in terms of, you know, I mean, there's a definite, it's certainly not a parody mm. in terms of the number of women who are working film critics. Um, but I do think that it's worth emphasising that culturally it was a very different time for just women in employment. It was, especially the 1980s, it was a hugely transitional period. Um, but what really struck me, not just with cinema papers, but with most of these publications, is that we don't get this, oh, look, women filmmakers thing that we do yeah. now um, by both men and women today, mm. that it was sort of just part of the job. These, these filmmakers. Were just, yeah, these were just, and to me, that's the goal. Yes, that, that we don't, that we're not, that every time a film comes out by a woman, it's not, oh, look, it's a film by a woman. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're like a unicorn. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and I was really struck by that. And this is yeah. not just in the film publications that I'm talking about, but also in um, the Courier-Mail, you know, all of these big... This was a time where they were full-time film critics. Mm. Now it's very much in Australia, at least. It's very much a, a freelancer-dominated field. Um, but these were, you know, people whose full-time jobs were being film critics and men and women. It was often not even mentioned the gender of the filmmaker yeah. it wasn't um, it wasn't a novelty mm. uh, to me which is something that I think we could perhaps aim for exactly. now it would be wonderful yeah for that to just be the mm-hmm. norm for sure and yeah I mean the only area where gender becomes important is if they've had to overcome huge barriers and that somehow plays a, a role a key role in their film or you know it, it is really a, something that they see as being central to their story well, Jane Campion is a really key figure, I think, mm. to mention here because, I mean, I'm, obviously I'm talking about the overlap between women's film writing and women's filmmaking. Um, that was a, a primary interest to me. Now, Campion is the queen, you know. she's I think she was the second woman ever nominated for uh, an Oscar director, best director. Um, she's the only woman today to still have won a Palme d'Or, which she won for the piano in 1993. And when she was the head of the jury at... Uh, Khan a couple of years ago and I'm paraphrasing this quote but she just said the most wonderful thing it's like you know I've got no problem with male filmmakers but there are stories that we're not hearing Mm. 
Um, and I think that that's really vital. And that doesn't just apply to women filmmakers. It, it applies to queer filmmakers, filmmakers of colour. We need to hear other stories where we can't keep hearing the same stories made by the same kind of people yes. because it, we, we burn out. And, yeah. and I think that there's something really vital to that. And I think that that, that in a way follows through to women's film criticism mm. in that we need to have different we just need different perspectives. Yeah, because it can often um, reinforce gender stereotypes. That's exactly it. Yeah, and it's interesting um, that the, I guess the impact of TV now on the, the the stories that we're getting about women seem to be a lot more um, nuanced and challenging those gender categories and stereotypes around men's roles and women's roles. So um, it's really interesting to see how that might fit into criticism more broadly, screen criticism. Absolutely. And I think historically it's also worth keeping in mind that um – and this was also found in the findings um, by Dr. Lawson at uh, San Diego State University on her, her report into women's film criticism in, in the United States in particular. Women, women film critics don't give free, a free pass to films made by women. Mm. And we see that in Australia going right back to my brilliant career, Lorraine Mortimer. Uh, in Lip Magazine, which is an art journal, 1979-1980, wrote an absolutely scathing review, a really passionately scathing review on Julian Armstrong's My Brilliant Career. And I think that we do have this idea that women give a kind of, you know, they're soft, they give a free pass. Absolutely not the case. The evidence is not there. Certainly in cinema papers, uh, that is not something that that I noticed. Yeah, yeah. And it's really clear that... um if you're looking at gender bias and anyone's biases, everyone has them. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. So as you say, it's it's not really going to be that starkly different. But just to quote a couple of statistics that I found really interesting for cinema papers, which um, you did look at from May 1986 till June 99, uh, you write of the... 1,077 total contributors that you counted, 341 of these were women. So it's basically 30%, which, um, yeah, that's low. What my question is, is at the time, were there more women film critics or just, well, film critics who were women um, around that weren't being published that wanted to be published? Because that's often at one part, it's hard to quantify, but it is often, you know, women can be consciously or unconsciously excluded from publications, particularly if they're already male dominated. And I just wonder, um, because you talk also about currently how many female film critics there are um, listed in that that primary association, whether, you know, there was more film critics out there who were women who were really wanting to get out there, Mm -hmm. but just didn't have the opportunity. I think that that would apply just as generally to journalism um, and to perhaps just to the workforce more generally. Were mm-hmm. there women during, especially in the early 80s, when we go through this huge cultural shift during the 70s where women returned to the workforce? Um, you know, it was still new. It was still relatively new that, that you know, women could be, you know, we, we know from that kind of pop cultural 80s rhetoric, you know, the working woman is sort of this novelty. Um, so I would, I would actually qu- raise those questions in the context of, of journalism in general, um, and it, like you said, it is something that we will n- never know because we don't have those those numbers. But and perhaps that's where something like the internet is useful because now today people can they can write fil- little film reviews on their Facebook account mm. um, or have a blog. So there is space. Back then, I think that you know the the most grassroots that you could do was where I started off, which was zine writing. Mm. Um, yeah. And even that is a kind of material commitment. 
That's true. I'm just thinking that in terms of being able to see where the power lies, mm. it's often with the editor. And I wonder with these journals, were there women editors? That's That was actually... Um, one of the most interesting things. So Philippa Hawke, I was really surprised. I know Philippa obviously is a film critic, um, but she, I, I, I feel, and obviously this is a, a subjective, um, a subjective observation, but I absolutely feel that Cinema Papers was its strongest when it was being edited by Philippa Hawker. Um, and I was going through them. I was going through these issues uh, chronologically. And there was just a batch of them that were amazing. They yeah. were really just <laughs> notably, you know, that just in terms of diversity and the, uh, not just in terms of the gender of the writers, but also in terms of the content that it was covering. And I went back and I noticed that the first issue was the one that Philippa Hawker edited and the last one was the last one that Philippa Hawker edited. Amazing. And it's not just Philippa, I think. And that's, you know, um, Metro in particular um, had some really extraordinary women who were editing during this particular period in the 80s. So Metro... Um, I've got the names here. Excuse me while I'm racing through. Uh, Sheila Allison um, and uh, Con, Con, Con. What's your first Helen. name? Helen. Helen Con. So these were really key key figures from mm. that power level. I think it's, it is really interesting. And the other thing I would say is a mea culpa. So when I'm looking at these um, that I don't think just applies to censors of cinema, but I think applies to a lot of online publications, um, these are, these are kind of, you know, we still struggle for parity. Mm. So the stats that I saw um, coming out of cinema papers during this period aren't that different from what we still have now. We just get more proposals from men, which isn't, isn't, an, isn't an excuse. No. Um, absolutely. You know, this, this sort of haunts me. Yeah. How do we get more women writing? Well, a lot of it from my um, experience in this area, in my professional background, mm. has been that um, it's often due to socialisation that women um, get backlash or a more negative response when they are forthright and put themselves forward um, because they're seen as being too too aggressive or too bossy yep. or too um, full of themselves, whereas men doing it, it's just accepted as, as a gender norm in, Absolutely. within male behaviour. And that I th that's what they should be doing. And I think there's some important stats that come out of this 2016 report um, by Dr. Laws. And, and one of the things that she noticed that, that I think is really important is that women film critics statistically don't belong to professional associations. Um, and that's a really key thing for me. I, mm. To my knowledge, I'm the only Australian member of the uh, Alliance of Women Film Critics, sorry, Alliance of Women Film Journalists that's based in the United States. Um, the wonderful Australian Film Critics Association, and I mentioned those numbers in here, and that's just counting down their website. Yeah. And I know that they really go to great lengths to drum up emerging critics. But I think that, um, and I know this just anecdotally, um, young, especially young, young women critics, I spoke to one recently that I encouraged to join AFCA, and she was like, it never occurred to me that I could. Mm. It never occurred to me that I would be good enough yeah. So I think that it's, um, yeah, like you said, I think it's cultural. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of looking forward and what we can do, and obviously you are a film critic and also an editor yourself, what do you think are some of the things that could quickly shift it? Because I don't think we have a lack of women who would be qualified uh, to write about films at, from an academic perspective, from a critic's perspective. Yep. So, you know, it, would targets meaningful targets actually be useful for different publications so that if they actually tracked 
who they were publishing um, and were more aware of their numbers, do you think that might mean that they take more um, efforts to actually boost it? I think partially it's to do with um, how open you are to emerging critics. There's a wonderful Sydney-based Australian film criticism site called 4.3 and they have a huge amount of young women writing for them. Um, really wonderful, wonderful critics um, that really might not get a foot in the door in more established places. Mm. Um, things like the uh, Critics Campus at the Melbourne International Film Festival really can't be, I've, and I've seen it, I've seen it time and time again, both through my involvement with Critics Campus but also through Senses of Cinema where there's, when there's formal validation for young critics, be they male or female, yeah. it's just lighting a fire. It's mm-hmm. just the fire in the belly is lit and there is there is nothing that can stop these young writers once they know that they can do it. Um, so I think... So that's a, support and encouragement. I think that they're really... And I, I think these formal mentorship or formal and informal in the case of 4.3, it's perhaps a bit more informal in that it is more accessible for younger emerging critics, particularly women, mm-hmm. um, and something very formal like this um, critics campus that's about to begin at, um, at MIF. Yeah. It yeah. is just once you tell somebody that they can do something, this idea of permission, mm. I think, is something that we really need to culturally address yeah, a- across the board. It's a valid career choice mm-hmm. and an important contribution. I recently spoke to Philippa Hawker and she said, you know, it, it was never a big deal for me when I started because it never occurred to me that I couldn't do it, mm. um, which I think was a really interesting observation. I've, and I've heard film, uh, film directors from the 80s and 90s say that. Laurie McGuinness, who made an amazing film called Broken Highway, that's playing in the pioneering women um, program at MIF. She she said something along the same lines that it never occurred to her that she couldn't be a woman director because it was there was just no discourse around it being a kind of a sore spot. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting how we've changed. Um, Alex, thank you so much. I'm really annoyed that we've run out of time because <laughs> we could keep talking for a long time about this. Um, I'm really excited, though, that there is this um, women uh, series that you've put together. Remind us of the name and and you're going to be talking about this on Triple R next week, I believe. I, I am. I'm joining uh, Fee in the live broadcast, so I'll be having a chat with Fee about the Pioneering Women program. Yeah. Um, and that's just before we do our uh, Plato's Cave uh, live broadcast yeah. at seven o'clock. So it's going to be, um, and and we have our um, one of the founders of Plato's Cave, Tara Judas, coming back. So it's going to be a lady cave. Excellent. It's be lots of girl energy. But no, the pioneering women program um, at MIF. Look it up. There's yeah, some definitely. things you will know and some things you won't know. Yeah, I'd already had a browse and it looks fabulous. So thank you very much, Alex. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Alex Helen Nicholas on her essay and research. And uh, if you want to look up the essay we've been referring to, it's called Projecting Prejudice, Why It's Time to Remember Women's Film Criticism. You can find it on Overland Journal's website and it'll be on the homepage because it was just published yesterday. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. And I'm delighted to have with me Professor David Lindenmeyer, who is a professor at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at Australian National University. And he joins me on the phone from Canberra. Hi, David. Hello, Amy. It's lovely to have you on the show and thanks for um, spending your time with us to talk about a really important topic and something which you are very, very well across. So I'm looking forward to drawing out your insights today. 
Thank you very much. So, first of all, the area that uh, we're going to be talking about today is the Central Highlands in Victoria. And it's my understanding that you have been researching alongside your colleagues, but definitely you um, in particular have been doing so, looking into the mountain ash forests in the Central Highlands, which are actually not that far away from Melbourne's CBD. Is that right? That's correct. I've been working in those forests around Healsville, Marysville, Warburton, Moogee, Powelltown, that, that area, since 1983. And by and large, it's only about 90 minutes' drive from the MCG, so it's very close to Melbourne, but it's a part of the world that almost nobody in Melbourne actually knows or appreciates. And, and I think that's a real shame because these are truly majestic forests, amazing places, lots to discover, and really should be a playground for a, for a great city and hopefully more people in Melbourne might take notice of, of what an extraordinary place it is. It is a beautiful place, deeply affecting. Um, I went there about a week and a half ago on a Saturday uh, to Tulangi State Forest to look at the giant uh, trees there, the mountain ash trees, and also um, the rainforest, which is just also uniquely beautiful um, in itself, very moist. And the bird sounds are quite phenomenal too. Just walking through, you hear so many different bird songs. It can be quite a shock coming from a city area to be surrounded surrounded by so much life. So that's something that struck me. So I'm hoping um, we can really draw out now the aspects of this particular area and the mountain ash forest. So first of all, when we're talking about mountain ash trees, what makes them particularly special? Because I understand they are the world's largest or tallest flowering trees, but what about them makes them particularly unique within this forest and ecosystem? Oh, gosh, there's lots of amazing things about mountain ash. Uh, as you said, the tallest flowering plants in the world. They're also some of the world's fastest-growing trees. So when, when these trees are very young, they can put on more than a metre per year in growth. So a 70-year-old tree can be 70 metres tall. So if, if we go to the next, the, the largest tree of all, that's the redwoods, the giant redwoods of, of uh, California, giant sequoias. Those trees reach their top height of around about 1,200 years old, whereas Mount Nash is doing that within about 200, perhaps even faster. So extraordinary growth rates, incredible productivity of these forests, and, and really such an extraordinary diversity of, of uh, birds and mammals and, and other creatures, many of which we don't even know very much about. So really quite an amazing place. Uh, unbelievably beautiful majestic trees and then many layers in the forest as well so underneath the, the canopy of these uh, enormous trees there can be a rainforest layer there can be a tall shrub layer a tree fern layer um, a low shrub layer and a ground layer so really quite different in many respects to many other parts of the world in terms of how much biomass is there and how much biodiversity occurs in these kinds of forests. Indeed, and, and it's all interconnected. And one of the key aspects that draws that out is what can happen in mountain ash forests, particularly when there are wildfires that occur and how then it also creates seedlings or the seedlings then drop to create more trees. Could you share with us the natural disturbances that occur in a mountain ash forest? And uh, we'll move in later to human disturbances. So the, the natural disturbance regime in these forests are rare but very high intensity and very high severity 
fire. So intensity means the amount of heat that's produced, and the amount of heat produced can be colossal in these forests during these very rare fires, and it's close to approximating what probably happened during the Second World War in Japan following the, um, the dropping of, of uh, various atomic bombs. And then also very severe. Now, severity means how much vegetation is is consumed by, by the fire. So they're quite different things. But characteristically, you have very high-intensity fire that's also very severe. What happens is that as the flames reach up into the canopy, the fruits of the eucalypts, so these woody fruits, then stimulate it to release their seeds. And they release literally millions and millions and millions of tiny little microscopic seeds which is really quite remarkable when you think of such a tiny seed that grows into such a huge tree. So unlike most eucalypts around Australia, which can be burnt and then recover naturally, so the tree isn't killed, in the case of mountain ash forests, often during these very high severity fires, the majority of trees are killed. And the next crop of young trees is actually amongst the millions of little seedlings that pop up uh, immediately after the fire. Now, the really interesting thing about this is that trees show the opposite life history strategy to animals. So what tends to happen with animals, uh, including humans, is that as we get older, we get less fertile. So the older you get into your middle age and then late age, the less offspring you tend to have. Whereas in the case of trees, it's the opposite. So as time goes on and the trees get older, the more of their energy gets it's diverted into producing seeds and reproduction. And so what we've actually found after the big fires in 2009, after those fires, what we saw was that the biggest crops of germinants or, or baby plants on the forest floor was actually underneath the old forest that had been burnt. So what happens then is you may have literally millions and millions and millions of seedlings all starting off the race for light. And they all grow as fast as they possibly can to win that race for light. And what happens is that when you start with millions of seedlings, very soon you have uh, 100,000 seedlings because the others die. And then from 100,000 seedlings, you'll have 10,000. And it goes on that way. And the numbers of these trees thins out very rapidly as does the forest. So by the time you get back to an old growth forest, maybe 200 years later, you might have... 40 or 50 large old trees across a hectare of forests. So start with tens of thousands, if not millions, end up with uh, a handful, you know, a couple of dozen, three or four dozen trees. So quite an interesting lifestyle. What we found is that sometimes these fires aren't so intense or so severe that everything gets killed. And then we find that there are trees that have fire scars on them, a bit like a church door. And that tells us very much about what's happening with the dynamics of fire in the landscape because these church doors tend to be on the opposite side from where the, the fire front has come. And then the tree is able to heal itself, stay alive, keep growing, but there's a little scar or sometimes a very large scar on the other side of the tree which tells us about the past disturbances that have happened in that system. Right, and so talking about old-growth mountain ash forests, particularly in this central highlands area, just how much of that of the forest more broadly is old growth? Because I know there has been a great deal of contestation around definitions of old growth over time and even more recently by the state government. Yes, that's right. So 
We think of old growth trees these days as trees that have very large branches, very small canopies, and usually have very large hollows. And those, those kinds of features normally develop in a tree that's about 190 plus years old. The sad thing in the Central Highlands is that uh, probably historically there would have been somewhere between 30 to, to 60 percent of the forest would have been old growth. Now it's around about 1 percent or less. And the definition of old growth keeps being changed by the state government so that it allows more and more forest to be logged. So what happens is that the state government is presently continuing to change the goalposts so that they can relax the laws about what areas can be, be cut and what areas can't. But the, the reality is that the vast majority of this forest now is, is dominated by very young forests, and those young forests don't have many of the features that are important for animals, but also some plants. For example, mistletoe is a very important resource in mountain ash forest. But it's largely a structure or a feature that's found only in very old trees. And so there are some species of birds that are associated with that mistletoe, but uh, those birds are really now very rare in the forest. Mistletoe bird is a classic example. Uh, and that's because old growth is rare and associated plants like mistletoe is also very rare. And within this mountain ash forest area in the Central Highlands, I'm wondering where exactly are the old growth areas located there? And if people wanted to visit them, where should they be directing their interest? Well, there's almost no old growth left. There's a few patches now in the, in the Borbor area, out past Tangle Brand and that part of the world. And then there's a, some small patches uh, east of Marysville and then the remainder, uh, again, very small patches are deep within the water catchment which aren't accessible to the public. And that's to keep the, the water quality high and um, the, the uh, integrity of the water supply system for 4 million plus Melburnians uh, keep that intact. So places like Marysville, you can go out past Marysville, out on the road towards Wood, Woods Point. There's some, some nice patches of old growth forest there. And then out past, uh, out towards Mount Borbor, there's still also a few small patches of old growth forest. And occasional very large trees. In a place like Tulangi, for example, Tulangi State Forest, where you were the other day, there are some occasional little pat tiny patches of old growth forest with some truly extraordinary trees in them. Mm. And would that be a- along the Kalatha Giant Tree Walk Trail? That's right. There's there's one tree in particular, the Kalatha Giant, which is really, really something special. Mm. And that's probably one of the, the, the most straightforward and easiest trees to be able to see that's uh, truly colossal. Another one is out past Paltown on the road between Paltown and Nuji, and that's the Ada tree. And that's also reasonably accessible and, and quite an extraordinary tree to, to actually see. And uh, really, it's, it's something that more and more Melburnians really should do because that's where almost all the, the city's water comes from. It's uh, very important for maintaining a clean, clean atmosphere, good air to breathe, and it's really quite a remarkable place just to go and, and have a look and see what an amazing forest can look like. It is. It's actually really hard to articulate 
just how beautiful and awe-inspiring it is to be there. As you're saying, the smell of the forest is so unique and beautiful and clean and moist and um, you walk away and smell your clothes and you can smell the forest on you. And interestingly, when I was looking at the uh, Kalatha giant and a few of the trees around it, you say there that there are um, these, I guess, hollows that often occur in old growth trees or older trees. And in some of the research that you've published with others, you've mentioned that it can take up to 120 to 150 years before hollows like that are able to be used by animals such as possums and gliders. Is that part of the reason um, why the Leadbeater's possum, for example, and the greater glider are threatened within this broader ecosystem? Uh, That's the principal reason, uh, and that is that those animals spend, uh, in the case of Leadbeater's possum, the animal spends... 75% of its life living inside a large old tree. Uh, And in fact, it's not only just one large old tree. These animals regularly swap between different den trees as a strategy to to make sure that they're not predated by owls. And so a colony of Leadbeater's possums or a pair of greater gliders are going to need a whole series of different nest trees or these great big den trees to move between to be able to survive. Now, the problem is that uh, historically there was an enormous amount of timber harvesting that went on in those mountain ash forests. In fact, there was as much timber coming out of Port Melbourne as there was out of Seattle, even though Seattle has a way larger timber catchment through those Douglas fir forests in the Pacific Northwest of the USA. So there was an enormous amount of pressure on those forests for a long time. And almost all of the old growth was liquidated in those forests very early and then what has also happened is that normally the fire regime should be one of these very uh, very intensive and very catastrophic fires about once every 75 to 115 years but we've seen 10 major fire events in the last century in these central highlands forests so the combination of fire and logging has really changed these entire landscapes quite dramatically. So they were once dominated by extensive areas of very old forest, and now it's the opposite. They're dominated by very young areas of forest with only very small patches of very old forest embedded within them. So a lot of animals are simply not evolved to deal with not only the amount of disturbance, but also the lack of these key resources, these very large old trees. And that's why we see animals like Leadbeater's possum in so much trouble. But now we're seeing other animals like the greater glider. And the greater glider has... Uh, its, its numbers have slumped by nearly 50% in the last 17 or 18 years. And the, the yellow-bellied glider is also in trouble. And many aspects of this forest are really deeply disturbed and the system is really close to collapse if there's not something significant done fairly soon. Absolutely. And uh, in one of the ecological risk assessments that uh, you and colleagues put together, I think it was in uh, about 2015, or at least it was published in 2015, spoke about, uh, well, you modelled various scenarios, 39, um, and that there is a huge chance of ecosystem collapse by 2067. You're talking about the animals and how they're affected 
also then when, when we're looking at the trees and the types of disturbances they experience, both natural, which is wildfire, which you're talking about, and also human disturbance, which would be logging, these trees, when they are disturbed, they take 20 years to reach sexual maturity to then be able to produce seeds at all. Um, so there's that kind of real need to actually give it enough space to grow. And then my understanding is often if mountain ash trees don't flourish in those areas or don't regenerate, then there are other tree species that will come in to replace them. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, so you're, you're spot on. But the reality is that... Um Trees like mountain ash need many, many years to start producing viable crops of seeds. And as I was saying before, after the 2009 fires, the places that produced the most seed and the most young germinants were actually in the old forest. And yes, while there was a little bit of seed production in the younger forest, it was significantly less, way less than what we saw in the older forest. So the danger here is that if these forests burn too frequently, what happens then is the forest is not old enough to produce viable seed, enough viable seed, and the forest gets replaced by things like wattle. And that means a, a whole number of things. First of all, there's not the habitat for animals. The second thing is that the amount of carbon that's stored in these forests is greatly diminished, and this is really important because we're looking at some of the most carbon-dense forests you'll find anywhere on the planet. The third thing that's really important that should really send alarm bells ringing in Melbourne and that is that almost all of the, the city's water supply comes from these forests and the water dynamics of those regions will be massively altered if these forests collapse and are replaced by acacia. Now, Melbourne already has the most expensive water in the world and if you are to see further depletions of the water supply for, that, for the city, then you're going to be in massive trouble. Now, this is a water supply for more than 4 million people and already some water modellers are predicting that Melbourne is going to run out of water within 10 years. So really what needs to happen is that the government needs to get its skates on and it needs to seriously think about making sure that its policies don't create a train wreck. And I, I have to say that it's not only this present Labor government, but successive Liberal governments before that, as well as other preceding Labor governments that have led to... Uh, the problems here in terms of their poor forest management policies and not thinking deeply enough about the really important ecosystem values of these forests for the largest number of people. And particularly the water issue here is absolutely crucial. Absolutely, and the evidence is really clear and damning. And I just want to talk now about the human disturbances in more detail, and that uh, in particular is clearfell logging in this area in the Central Highlands because, as I've read in some of your work, there has been in the past a justification of clearfell logging which was based on a premise that it mimics high severity wildfires and therefore uh, the biodiversity in that forest would be unlikely to be affected. Now all the evidence shows that's just not the case. I mean what is the case? What is the difference between clearfell logging and the fires that occur in that scenario versus a wildfire scenario? Oh, gosh, Amy, how long have we got? We could talk <laughs> about quite a few minutes. Feel free. <laughs> we, could talk, we could talk about this for the next two or three days. Yeah. But the, the, strong, the stark reality here is that uh, fire and logging are basically very different kinds of disturbance processes. Uh, fire essentially leaves uh, standing, living and dead trees, 
many of the understory plants naturally recover. For example, tree ferns, uh, musk daisy bush. Uh, so essentially, those things don't happen in a clearfelled forest. In a clearfelled forest, almost all of the trees are removed. Uh, those that aren't removed are nearly always killed or very, very badly damaged in the subsequent regeneration burn. Plants like uh, tree ferns, rough tree fern, um, soft tree fern, populations of those are depleted by up to 96%. Other plants like musk daisy bush are essentially eliminated. Plant species richness is, is uh, reduced by nearly 50%. Uh, the list goes on. Essentially, the system is, is dramatically changed. Mm. Now, the other thing that's really important here is that this is, these are not independent processes now. So when a forest is clear-felled, what happens then is it's regenerated with a very dense stand, almost a wheat crop of young seedlings, uh, germinants that are really established in these systems. And to, ha to our horror, we've discovered that these areas are now far more fire-prone than they would have been previously. So logging actually increases the fire burden in these forests, which par partially explains why we've had so many successive fires uh, in the last 50, 60, 100 years. And so these processes don't, they're not independent on one another. Uh, logging essentially leads to increased fire proneness, but also the system is not dealing with one or the other. It's not dealing with logging or fire. It's, it's dealing with both kinds of disturbance processes. And they're interacting and creating these cumulative neg negative impacts on the entire landscape. So there are massive differences. Uh, some are quite easy to explain. Some of them are more complex. But the overall outcome is that the system is radically altered. And the entire processes of, of fire recovery, of hollow development, of landscape pattern and heterogeneity, all of those things are now so radically altered that the system needs a rest. It needs to be rested from these... Uh, environmental insults that come from widespread clear felling for the system to be able to regenerate the old growth components of the system which give it greater resilience not only to climate change but to other subsequent disturbances and without that without that chance to to recover then the system has a very high risk of collapsing. You are listening to my interview with Professor David Lindenmeyer, who is based at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the ANU. Uh, in this second half of our, our interview and discussion, uh, you'll hear about the politics of the mountain ash forests in the Central Highlands, as well as the proposed Great Forest National Park and uh, what's happening with that proposal and why we haven't seen it uh, brought into practice um, and announced by the state government as yet. Yet. So I hope you enjoy this second half. Mm. And let's talk about climate change because that is a, a really important factor here, particularly because uh, temperature and precipitation in the mountain ash ecosystem are really quite important. They're really mild and humid winters and cool summers. And as you say in your report, um, the mean annual temperature goes from 7.2 degrees to 14.1 degrees. So it's a very unique climate that anyone going will recognise when they visit there and so therefore the impacts of climate change would be quite significant um the, the, it's not the case that they would be that it's the case that they are mm. um, we, we've already been recording now significant climate signals in these forests so what we're seeing is uh for example a huge pulse in the mortality of large old trees 
during the millennium drought right through that system. So uh, we saw background levels of large old tree death at probably 20 times what you would normally see in a forest that wasn't subject to the kinds of temperatures that were almost unparalleled during that millennium drought. Uh, we're also seeing evidence of some species of birds basically moving to much higher elevations than they were previously and departing sites at lower elevations that they previously occurred. So a good example is a, this magnificent bird called the pilot bird. It's got this most extraordinary call. That, that bird now seems to be moving uh, to cooler, wetter, higher elevations uh, in the alpine ash forest, which is neighbouring the, the, the mountain ash forest. So the, it's not a case of weather climate change will occur. It is occurring and the signals are showing a very clear and present danger. And so now if we're looking at what you're talking about, which is that we need to give it a rest, and not just temporarily, which is what Minister D'Ambrosio has proposed for one particularly small site in the Tulangi State Forest uh, due to the threat to the Greater Glider, but we also uh, presumably need to be looking at this whole region of the Central Highlands and taking a more coherent and broader approach to that region. And in your expertise and, and professional opinion, what actually needs to be done? to preserve what currently is and then for it to actually uh, regenerate and improve? Well, I think the clear, the clear outcome now is that both ecologically and economically, the most sensible decision here is to move the uh, native forest logging industry out of the Central Highlands forests and move it into the plantation sector. So we need the... We need, uh, a move towards a Great Forest National Park and very quickly to preserve the city's water supply, to lock up large amounts of carbon as part of Victoria's contribution to tackling dangerous climate change, which is now occurring. We have to tackle climate change, otherwise we're going to be in enormous trouble. But there are also extraordinary tourism opportunities from these same forests. So we've got water supply, carbon, uh, tourism... But also, in the process of converting these areas to uh, a large national park, we reduce the fire risk across this system and the risk of killing people in very dangerous, high-severity fires. That's really important. Now, if we look at this economically, as we have done, we've used the United Nations and World Bank's approach to systematically accumulating the economic and environmental information through an accounting process, we actually see that Victoria will be significantly better off financially and economically without logging these forests. So we will lose about $12 million a year to the economy by not logging those forests, but we will gain several tens of millions of dollars in extra water, and, and many, many more tens of millions of dollars through uh, tourism outcomes. And so essentially this is a, a very strongly revenue positive outcome when we look at this in a holistic sense. And really that's what we elect governments to do, to make good economic and environmental decisions for the whole population, not, not basically to hand uh, a huge amount of power and resource at almost no cost to a small number of of people, including a Japanese-owned paper company. That's what the economic accounts are showing, 
they're showing that essentially both Liberal governments and Labor governments in the past and presently are handing a huge subsidy to an overseas company with very little economic return to the state. And you know, to me, that's akin to economic vandalism, uh, which is coupled with environmental vandalism. And I, I just don't think in a solid, forward-looking democracy, we should be doing those kinds of uh, half-assed kinds of things anymore. And in a submission that you uh, wrote in response to a discussion paper in 2016 uh, for the state government, you spoke about how um, the Central Highlands region is one of the most productive and heavily logged native forest regions in Victoria, and particularly looking at uh, the jobs that are tied to native forest logging. Actually, that accounting study reveals that there are very few direct jobs um, that are involved in this field. And, uh, and as you've said... Really, plantation forests um, are still going to offer a similar quality and um, and can really be a substitute for native forest logging. That's exactly right. So, so in more recent uh, economic and environmental accounting, we've we've shown that the plantation sector is nearly three times more lucrative to the state from the Central Highlands area relative to the native forest sector. We've also seen that. Uh, the number of jobs in the tourism industry is roughly 10 to 20 times that of the native forest sector. So, so really, in terms, if you were thinking about this in terms of economic return, talking about this in terms of uh, social contribution in terms of employment to the state, you would not do what you are doing now because it's economic madness. You would change the way you are doing things to employ more people, to bring more money into the states, to bring more money into that region and provide more opportunities for more people. And that's exactly not what is happening at the moment. And I would be calling on the state government to radically rethink what it's doing and do it urgently because essentially it's squandering a really important resource for the people of Victoria and for the people of the rest of Australia. And this Great Forest National Park that has been proposed, which does encompass a huge range of these towns and surrounding areas in the forest, it, it obviously includes Tulangi in that as well as uh, Marysville and Hillsville. What has been the history behind the Great Forest National Park? Because it's been on the table for quite a while and we've had various lukewarm signals that it's under consideration. Why haven't we had a significantly positive response from government on that? Uh, the reason that we haven't had a positive response from it is that the, the, the native forest timber industry has many allies within government. So essentially, many state government agencies, um, they're actually very pro-logging. They're actually arguing strongly in favour of maintaining the status quo. And then we have the union movement, the CFMEU, that's lobbying the state government very hard. And you've got the timber industry itself even though there's only seven sawmills in the Central Highlands now, that you heard right, not 70, not 700, but seven sawmills in the whole of the Central Highlands region. Those organisations are lobbying government uh, every moment that we can speak, every moment that we can think they are lobbying state government to maintain their status with essentially a resource rent-free access to those forests. And so it's very hard to change government policy on these things when you have very strong lobbying from not only within government agencies, but also externally from the union movement and from industry. 
So the, so the reality is that every single Melbourneian that drinks water, every single Melbourneian that breathes the air, every single Melbourneian that lives in that city, that beautiful city, is basically having that very important resource discounted by the government, which is supposed to manage that public resource for the maximum public good, which it's not presently doing. So this is why we've still got this problem, despite all the evidence that we should change the policy. It's, and so this is what we're up against, to change policy in the face of uh, incredible lobbying uh, and incredible vested interests. And this is not unusual for the forest industry. This happens worldwide, but it also happens in fishing industries. And as we've seen more recently on the ABC Four Corners program, it also happens in the water industry and elsewhere. So natural resource industries tend to subvert the system to maximise the benefits for a small number of people that, that do well out of it and, and massively discount the benefits to a large number of people that should otherwise benefit from the use of those resources. This is not uncommon, unfortunately, and it means that really the only way to change these things is through people power to uh, create their support for something that's sensible, like a change like this, and force governments to make those changes when it's, it's blindingly obvious from the science and the social science and the economics that that's what has to happen. Indeed. And let's just remind everyone that is it about 96% of the forests that we're talking about are publicly owned forests and land? That's correct. So these forests are owned by the people of Victoria. These are public forests and these forests are meant to be managed for the maximum public good. Mm. And the economic and environmental accounts data clearly shows that that is not the case at present. And uh, while I've still got a, a breath left in my body, I will continue to tell everybody that that's the case until the government makes the right decision, the sensible decision, the scientific decision, the economic decision to move towards a Great Forest National Park. Now, the other thing that's important to realise here, Amy, is that the timber industry will not stop tomorrow. There's two industries here. There's a plantation industry and there's a native forest industry. The plantation industry is actually uh, very economically robust and it's presently trying to compete with the native forest industry with two hands tied behind its back. And we've seen it elsewhere around the world, particularly in New Zealand, when that competitive disadvantage that they have is taken away, then the plantation sector goes ahead in leaps and bounds. And that's really what you want from Victoria anyway. And already in the state, 82% of all sawn timber comes from the plantation sector. So once it's got the native forest sector monkey off its back, then the plantation sector will be able to go ahead and, and really um, really move, move ahead with the times. So that's exactly what we've seen in places like New Zealand where, you know, they've bitten the bullet made the sensible economic and environmental decisions and the plantation sector has really moved ahead in a big way. Yes, it's a great uh, reminder that we're not talking about stopping logging altogether. We're talking about stopping logging in these really important ecosystems that are native forests. Obviously, plantations have a very specific purpose and in a controlled way they can be logged. And in terms of our state parliamentarians and politicians, what has been their response to the proposed Great Forest National Park? 
Prior to the previous election, Leader of the Opposition, as he was then, Daniel Andrews, and his Shadow Environment Minister, uh, Shadow Environment Minister Lisa Neville, they came on a field trip with us and they were adamant that they wanted to implement a Great Forest National Park. They could see that the problems that the forest had, they were aware that very little soil log timber was left. This is a really key issue. There is not a long life left now for the soil log industry because of extensive past logging. So the key issue then is that we have on record prior to the state elect, last state election, the then Labor opposition and now Labor government made a commitment, a commitment in writing to me, and I have, I have the letter that was written to me, committing to the establishment of a great forest national park. And so now the science is even more overwhelming than it was in 2013, December 2013, when we made that field trip. And I think that it's really time to make the right decision for the state, for economic growth, for job opportunities, and for the forest itself, and the water supply for the city of Melbourne. It's quite clear what to do, and there's been a promise made, and every politician needs to keep their promises. Uh, especially when they make them to the general public. And this is a really important promise to keep for all Victorians and all Melburnians. Let's just close out the conversation on a high note because um, I'm really glad that we have been able to get to the complexity of this issue and really feel the gravity of why it's important. I also want to talk about just why it's so beautiful on a personal note. So for you, David, given that you've been working in this forest for such a long period of time, I just wanted to hear from you. What are your favourite aspects when you visit areas like Tulangi State Forest and the other areas around it in the Central Highlands? What are some of the most beautiful aspects and animals and birds for you? Uh, I, 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 um, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, it's, it's a deep part of my psyche, those mountain ash forests, and it's probably the reason why I'm so passionate about them and why I'm so passionate for a change because uh, I'm also um, Melbourne. I'm a Melbourne person by birth. And I've spent a long time living in Victoria and, and I love the state. As I love the city, um, I think the, there are so many aspects of the forest that I that I deeply enjoy. I probably one of my favourite things to do is to do bird plots when I'm in those forests where we're um, going to the long-term monitoring sites that we've established over the years and counting and recounting and recounting the birds on those, those sites. I love listening to the to the bird calls. Uh, it's a very peaceful activity also where my mind starts working and I get lots of ideas for, for our next scientific scientific papers. Um, I've, it's, it's a part of the forest that's really shaped my whole career. So I have a, a sort of a, a deep gratitude to that forest for the way I think and the way I work. And um, it's, it's a, legacy, a legacy that I would really love to be able to share with millions of other people from, from Victoria. Um, so that they have an opportunity to be able to experience even just a little bit of what I've been able to experience over the last three decades. Thank you, David. Um, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think that 
I would also concur with you that um, the bird songs were one of the most moving and beautiful parts of my brief visit um, a week and a half ago to uh, Tulangi State Forest. And I did actually record the sounds on the Kalatha Giant Tree Walk, which I will play for um, everyone right now. So thank you so much, David, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. And um, I, I really hope now that we can get a lot more people down there and to visit this, this whole area of the Central Highlands and to truly appreciate the ecosystem that exists. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Cheers. And that was my interview with Professor David Lindenmeyer, who is based at the ANU and is a prolific researcher of the Central Highlands mountain ash forests. Highly recommend looking up um, some of his writing. He's published for CSIRO. He's uh, published in journals. He's written op-eds um, and just a really a wonderful guy. Um, and as I did mention, I went on uh, the Kalatha Giant Tree Walk and took a little bit of a voice sound recording um, on my iPhone. So apologies if it's not perfect in terms of sound quality, but I think this is really beautiful and it it will just give you a, a little bit of a brief sense of what it's like to be there in an audio sense. that there is just a little bit of the the bird sounds and songs that you can hear if you're in the Tulangi State Forest which is part of the Central Highlands and features some beautiful mountain ash trees and a bit of a shout out to Tulangi Tavern which is just on the way to the State Forest. Highly recommend their mulled wine and it's a beautiful place to stop before and or after any trip. Um, you don't need to uh, rough it you can have the creature comforts as well so um, just make note that uh, you just need to drive through the Yarra Valley to get to this beautiful place in Victoria Um, I went to the Tulangi State Forest but there are so many other aspects of this broader proposed Great Forest National Park that you yourself can also visit so I hope you enjoy that interview. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.